<clears throat> well, um, well, good morning, everyone. Um, if you could go ahead and open up your Bibles to, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. That is where we will be shortly. But um, as the offering is going around, I just I wanted to take a minute to express my gratitude for all of the prayers and support over the past week or so since uh, last week I, I got sick and I ended up in the ER last Thursday. Um, not the least of all to, to you, Jeff, to, to step in on basically a day's notice. Um, so thank you so much, and, and God proved himself faithful last week. But, but what, what I, was, I was so struck with uh, so immensely and served by so deeply last week was when I was, when I was up here and uh, during the prayer time and, and looking out and seeing the church come together and pray. It impacted me so much. Um, Jeff always mentions that, you know, the first person who has to listen to and apply the sermon is the person preaching. And, well, last week was, you know, kind of a painful reminder of that because for today we're going to be going over encouraging one another. And as the backdrop of all that, we're going to be talking about the faithfulness of God and the foundation that we have because of the promises that God has made. And as I was on the stage looking out and seeing people praying for, for one another and, and people who had stepped up and served in so many different ways to make last week happen, I, I was just struck with First Thessalonians 5, 7, where it says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Because the circumstances last week were not coincidence. Instead, they were just yet another incredible reminder of the sovereignty and faithfulness of our God. So, so thank you all for encouraging one another and building each other up just as you have done, quite literally living the scripture and, and making my job of coming up with examples of how to do this easier later on because just, just looked last week and, and that's the application. Um, so before we get into our main text this morning, which will be Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, I feel that it's, it's important to give a brief rundown of Hebrews, albeit kind of from a thousand feet. Uh, in order to get a slightly better picture of where we are and how our text flows through uh, in the entirety of the book. So for the next few minutes, let me try my best to, to give you the Hebrews rundown, and I, I pray that this doesn't lose everybody, but I, I do think that it will, it will serve us well. So, so for the, when preparing to preach the Word of God, you really, the main thing that you're trying to focus on is to be as faithful as you can to the content and the context of what is trying to be communicated. So, so to attempt to avoid that mistake, the first stop that you make is by asking, all right, who is the author and who are they writing to? Um, well, Hebrews, in that sense, is peculiar because both the author and audience is relatively, if not entirely, unknown. The title found in most ancient manuscripts reads, To the Hebrews, and the tone of the book assumes that the readers were Christians. So this shows that the book must have been written to a, a, a Jewish community that had converted to Christianity and were experiencing potential persecution and imprisonment for their associations with Jesus. The writings are, are very personal, so the author and, and the audience had to have known each other well. And, and based on the examples in the book, uh, Hebrews obviously was written to people who had a significant amount of knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, so the, the purpose of this almost like sermon-like letter is to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. 
if I had to put it into one sentence, I'd say that Hebrews' main theme is that Jesus is better and vastly superior to everything else. So follow him with all that you are and have faith because he is coming back. That might be a run-on sentence, but hey, I did my best. Um, So the book breaks down into five major sections with the content of the first four sections revolving around this structure of highlighting an area of Old Testament theology or characters and proclaiming that Jesus is exalted over all of them and concluding that section with a warning. So section one, in chapters one through two, the author highlights the angels and the message that they they delivered, that being the Torah, and proclaims that Jesus is better than that. And if, if Israel was supposed to follow the Torah delivered by the angels, how much more then should they follow Christ? The author then calls the readers to remember Moses in the promised land in chapters 3 and 4 and said that Jesus is better than that and warns against rebelling from Christ. He then says in chapters 5 to 7, remember the priest and, and Melchizedek? Well, Jesus is better than them, and to reject him would be rejecting your best and only chance to be reconciled to God. In chapters 8 through 10, he talks about the sacrifices and the covenants in the Old Testament and says Jesus is better than that. So don't walk away because he is coming back. And in the final three chapters, 11 through 13, the charge and challenge is to follow Jesus because he is worthy. Following the great models of faith shown from the past, for despite hardship and persecution, God is faithful and he will not abandon his people. And, okay. So, so now we, are, we arrive at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and, and the role of this section is very significant. This is why I spent so much time talking about Hebrews. It's because the role of this section is to move the content from instruction up until that point in Hebrews to application. This is where we find ourselves this morning. So let's read God's word in Hebrews 10, starting at 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed and pure with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you illuminate your word this morning so that we can see Jesus more magnificently. And that ultimately we can do as a serious intention is, and that is to make Christ visible in our personal lives and collectively as the body of believers here at Christ Community Church. God, only your words have transformational power. So God, please speak to us this morning. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be focusing today on verses 23 through 25, with the intention of communicating today's big idea. And that is, let us, as the body of Christ, encourage one another with the promises of God, being 
mission-minded and driven forward as we eagerly await the certainty that Jesus is coming back. So let's pick up again in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So as we're going to see as we move through this passage is the author is outlining a course of action for the readers and for us to follow. This is is significant because, like I said before, this is the point where it moves towards application. So we will be periodically checking in with this action plan, as I'm calling it, as we we go along to help us understand its flow and, um, and so forth. So the first point in the action plan starts where any course of action plan in the Christian life should. It starts first side of ourselves and solely on the work that Christ has done for us. In fact, as we just saw throughout the entire course of Hebrews, is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the commands and imperatives of the Bible and characters of the Old Testament. When we were called to follow the law, but we were utterly incapable alone, Jesus did this for us. When the sacrifices for our sins were inadequate and temporary, Jesus made the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. When we are called to do something in the Christian life, we need to remember to keep the calling connected to the work of Jesus. The author calls us to hold on to the confession of our hope. Our hope is in him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous life. We need to embrace this hope Hold fast to this hope, for this hope that we have is not unsubstantiated or ungrounded hope like the world has. No, our hope is substance. It has substance. The, the word that he uses there is, is a conscious reference back to Hebrews uh, chapter 6, 19, where he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Our hope is so substantial and real that it is called an anchor. Kent Hughes said that our hope is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is anchored at the right hand of God. That is our hope, and that's what drives us forward into this action plan. So the author moves on to remind the audience that he who promised is faithful. So this practice of of recalling God's faithfulness in our lives is, is so vital to our Christian walk. It's only by recalling the faithfulness of God that we can believe the promises that he has made to us. It's the habit of reminding ourselves sometimes even verbally in the moments where our hope is wavering and saying, God, I remember your faithfulness to me before. You didn't forsake me then, and you will not forsake me now. It's when we've been reminded of what he has already done for us that allows us to go deeper into the promises that he has for us. Promises such as, you will hear me when I call. You will supply my every need. You will fight for me. You will not leave me or forsake me. You will give power to me when I am faint and renew my strength. You will uphold me. 
you will draw near to me when I draw near to you. When I trust you, you will make my path straight. Your steadfast love shall not depart from me. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. You will provide wisdom when I ask. You will cause the devil to flee. You have a plan for my life. You work all things together for my good. You will provide a way of escape in moments of temptation. You will calm my anxiety. You will give me the words to speak when I speak, to witness, speak out to witness to others. There are so many promises that God has made for us. Promises that we can use in those moments of wavering. Promises ready to be used as weapons in our arsenal. Are we arming ourselves with the promises of God? You see, where, where sin has false promises and false truth and never fulfills, we can fight them with God's promises, which are always true. What incredible things God will do if we just form the habit of, of trusting promises. Habits of, of going to the Lord throughout the day and saying, God, I, I need you right now. And following that profession by taking a promise, believing it, repeating it, and then turning the power, which is that promise, into deed. Verse 23 truly is the catalyst that drives us forward in this action plan. But continuing in, in verse 24, we will notice that the hope that we have because of the faithfulness and promises of God are not supposed to be for us exclusively. Reading again in God's word in 24, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice that it is not consider how to love each other and do good works. Now, that would be biblical and be right, but it's different. So let's look at the difference. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You see, verse 24 is why we are here on this earth. We are here to, to stir up other people to love and good works. Our focus is on helping others, and our aim is stirring up others, but I need to stop for a moment to make sure that that is clear. We shouldn't, we shouldn't read this and have our focus be, well, everybody else just needs to get their stuff together. And I'm, I'm just going to pray for them. They need to be fixed. Uh, this is what the Word of God is telling me. But the, the word in verse 24 is one another. So there is a reciprocity there. Yeah, you need to make yourself available to be stirred up as well. Because the point of this text is highlighting the interconnected function of the body itself. So just speaking anatomically for a moment, the leg can't support itself. It, it needs the foot, and, and the foot needs the toes, and the torso needs the legs. Um, that's just how the Christian walk is, and, and it's a reminder that we can't do this alone, that we aren't called to do this alone. So let's, let's get a little bit more into the details of verse 24 by, by looking at some of the original Greek. So, the first word I want to key on is, is the use of the word stir up. Stir up is, is an interesting word, to say the least, uh, in that it's, it's extremely strong. Uh, it's a strong word or phrase to use in this context. Um, so other translations translate this word as to provoke or spur on or arouse. 
But here's what I mean. So the, it's the Greek word, and please forgive my butchering of this, parixamos, uh, where we get the word paroxysm. And, and that word means a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. So it's not exactly a word I would think to use in the context of trying to get others to love others and do good deeds. <laughs> uh, it's, but you, thinking about it, it, it's the author's intention um, that these acts of love and good works would be almost uncontrollable acts of outburst of, of love and good works. That, that doing good works and being loving is just who you are. It's not an act of choice, but a reality of your core. So the next word that we're going to look at is the word consider. So, th- so this morning, in the beginning of the verse, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another. But the author uses consider one other time in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, consider Jesus. So we're going to use that context in Hebrews 3, 1 to, to understand the context of its use again in Hebrews chapter 10. So in that context, the writer wants us to look at Jesus, to think about him, to focus on him, to study him. Let your mind be occupied with him. So Jesus is the direct object of the verb consider. Con- consider what? Consider Jesus. So, well, in Hebrews 10:24, the grammar is actually the same as in chapter 3. The direct object of the word consider is one another. Literally, the Greek says consider one another. But the reason that it doesn't come over that way in English is that it just would be very bad grammar if we translated it exactly as it is in the Greek. Uh, It would actually read like this, consider one another unto stirring up love and good works. And that is just bad English and bad grammar. So it, it got translated to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. But The point being that the direct object of the word and the author's intention is to consider one another. To consider people. So so as as we saw from the beginning of our action plan in verse 23, once you're filled up with the hope and the promises of God, study one another. Christians are to are supposed to be people studying or watchers of one another. I know that sounds a little bit creepy. I just want to study you. But, but really what it means is that you, you want to know each other so deeply and, and beyond superficially. Literally, this God's call on us to consider one another uh, is to look at one another, to, to use those words that we, that we just used about Jesus, to, to think about one another, to, to focus on one another, to study one another, to let your mind be occupied with one another. And the goal of this focus is to think of ways of stimulating them to love and good works. That is just so cool to me to think about, that we are supposed to think of each other in that way, in that level of intimacy. So let's, let's take a moment and look at our course of action that the author is outlining. And, and we can see that we are to be filled with hope and to consider how to provoke one another to uncontrollable acts of love and good works by knowing each other so well that you know how to stir that person up, to be that type of person in the world. The point where we could say to each other, I I know you. I know something's off. What's up? How How can I pray with you? 
to get a friend who might be downtrodden and, and move them to being able to once again show the love of Christ in their life to those around them. That's the level of knowledge that the author wants us to have with one another. The, the, the level of knowledge that's required to apply this action plan. So the next question that needs answering in this course of action is, how do we learn about each other in that way and to get to that level of intimacy? So let's continue with the action plan in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So let's stop here for a moment. The, the first application that we need to hear is that we need to be at church on Sunday mornings and with the specific body of believers that God has called us to fellowship with. I figured it's, it's my second sermon here, right? It's, it's time to start ruffling some feathers, I guess. I've earned enough, you know, leeway, I guess. But um, when, when praying through this point, I feel God gave me three reasons why the corporate gatherings on Sunday mornings is something that cannot be sacrificed as a habit by professing Christians. And Milton would agree with me, even though he's not here. <laughs> so these, uh, the three reasons are this. So the first reason is Christians need to come together to rehearse the promises of God in corporate worship. Secondly, Christians need to come together as the body of Christ in order to experience God in the fullness of his triune nature. I said nature like that. But. And thirdly, Christians need to come together to show that church is not just a matter of convenience, but a matter of priority in their lives. So I'm going to go over each one of those points again, but I did want to clarify that author calls on anyone who is making a habit of missing. So that, that's where he's focusing in on. So there's still, even in this context, an understanding given for certain, certain circumstances. But, but this also shows that the idea of missing church is not a new problem. I think that we, we think that it is, but it's really not. People have thousands of reasons to stay away from church. And I can guarantee that the reasons that this particular body of believers had for missing church was probably a lot stronger than what we had to miss church. I mean, they're probably dealing with persecution and imprisonment. And, and, and the author saying, oh, yeah, make sure you don't make a habit of missing, even though that's true. So let's, let's get into those reasons again. And, and so the first one is Christians need to come together to rehearse the promises of God in corporate worship. So we just went over in verse 23 the value of rehearsing God's promises and the work that he has done for us. It's, it's what drives this entire action plan. It's the work that he has done in proclaiming the promises over us. That's what drives us forward. And, and you know what's so cool is that every week we are provided the opportunity to do that very thing through our times of corporate worship. All we do in worship is proclaim the work that God has done for us and sing his promises over each other. Now, now private worship is essential, but we were made for more than that. David Mathis said it this way, we were made to worship Jesus together. Among the multitude, with that great horde, swallowed up in the magnificent mass of the redeemed, 
God didn't fashion us to enjoy him finally as solitary individuals, but as happy members of a countlessly large family. When the fog of everyday life clears and we catch a glimpse of heaven's bliss, we don't find ourselves sequestered at a study desk or hidden alone in a prayer closet, but joyfully part of the worshiping throng of Christ's people from every tongue and tribe and nation. We were made for corporate worship. The reason number two is that Christians need to come together as the body of Christ in order to experience God in the fullness of his triune nature. So, so what do I mean by that? The, the reasoning is, is simply this, if you could put it that way, is that we were made in the image of God himself. Well, yeah, we were made in the image of God himself. It's like, but you know, who, who's, who is God himself? God is one God, but three persons. So we, the church, are many people, but one body. And, and because we are saved to be a part of that one body of Christ, it only makes sense that the fullness of joy that we can experience in God is when we are with one another as that body, experiencing God in the fullness of who he is, who he is because we were made in his image. Reason number three, again, is that Christians need to come together to show that church is not just a matter of convenience, but a matter of priority in their lives. We, we come to church because it's what we desire more than anything else. A chance to be with the body of Christ, rehearsing the timeless gospel and hearing God speak through his word fresh every week. There's nothing better. You see, church lets us hold Sunday mornings as the treasure that they are. Kent Hughes put it very well when he said it this way. We meet Christ in a special way in corporate worship and in gathering together. It is true that a person does not have to go to church to be a Christian. He does not have to go home to be married either. But, both, but in both cases, if he does not, he will have a very poor relationship. <laughs> that is very true and very helpful. So let's move on uh, in verse 25. So not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The second application here in verse 25 comes in light of the charge to encourage one another. The one another there implies that there is something mutual going on. And it illustrates that the author was talking not only about the corporate gathering, but also about our gatherings that allow, smaller gatherings that allow a mutual sharing of encouragement. These, these type of interactions can take place in church in part, but in order to avail oneself to reach the level of intimacy discussed in verse 24, because ultimately that, that's our intention, right? We're moving forward in, in the action plan. Well, the text points us that we need to be with each other in a setting that allows that level of bonding. And the area that immediately comes to mind in, in applying that is community groups. You see, community groups is that setting where we can hear each other's stories 
and to, to get to know each other on that level of intimacy discussed in verse 24. The, the application here is, is very clear. Let's be a church that takes full advantage of our community groups because that is our calling to encourage one another. And this, this is how we do it. This is the action plan, what we need to do. And in those moments of, of going to community group, it's not just being there, but making oneself available in those moments to each other to, to reveal those, the depths of who you are so that they can know you deeply to, in order to encourage you in those moments. So we are Christ Community Church. So let's, let's truly strive to be that community, to be those people that are one body, one family who knows each other well. So let's, let's circle back one more time and see how the author's course of action is playing out. The author says to fill yourself up with and hold on to the hope that you have because of the faithful work of God through Jesus Christ. Being uplifted by those promises he has made to you. And use that to drive yourself to stir up others to love and good works. But the effectiveness of our stirring up others requires a knowledge of each other that is deep and personal. And we see that we get to know each other that way by uh, coming to church and gathering together also in smaller settings such as, as small groups or dinners or uh, worship and prayer nights Wednesday night. You guys need to make it. Um, but we arrive now at how we are to encourage one another, the next step in this action plan. So, so what do we say to encourage one another, to be a lover and worker of good deeds? What do we say to one another when we're gathered together to encourage them as verse 25 is, is looking for us to do? So that they would be someone stirred up to love and good works, which is what verse 24 is calling us to do. Here is where it gets really cool, and I, I was like blown away by this this week. So, so listen, the answer to that, how do we encourage one another, is verse 23. Pointing one another to the promises and faithfulness of God. It, it really does blow my mind. So I, I, want, I want to outline this, and hopefully this, this carries, this carries the, how much my mind is blown. So consider this. So the author has built a plan of action that is entirely self-sustaining and replicating. And the only reason that it is true is because it begins and ends with God himself. The Alpha and Omega is the beginning and the end of how we are to encourage one another. It is always about him. We encourage one another by reminding each other that our only hope is God. We are to speak the promises of God to each other and tell each other stories from the Bible and from our experiences and their experiences to bolster our faith that God will indeed keep his promises to us. Reminding each other to, to recall how God was faithful in those situations in your life. Saying stuff like, hey, you remember that time when you had no money for food and, and a random check came in from the phone company? 
Wasn't it amazing how God provided in that moment? But saying stuff like that means that you have to know those details about each other. Encouraging one another looks like pointing to God's promises, saying things like, the Lord says that when we trust him, he will make our paths straight. So let's go to God in prayer to ask him to help us to trust him through this. But saying that requires knowledge of God's promises to use in those situations, but also to have enough emotional equity with that person that they can receive it in that moment. All of this is just another reminder that we need each other in order to walk out the Christian life. Put it this way. Frodo carried the ring to Mordor, but he never would have made it without old Samwise Gamgee. Sam was always right there to, to lift up Frodo just when he had just about given up. One particular moment in in the film, The Two Towers, is a tremendous moment of encouragement from Sam to Frodo. So Sam and Frodo were on their way to Mordor and were in the kingdom of Gondor when when Frodo almost gave into the ring's desire to to give it to one of the Nazgul. When Sam Sam tackles him down and, and, and gets Frodo back to his senses, exhausted and defeated, Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't, know, didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines out, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. What were they holding on to, Sam? that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. And he picks up Frodo, and they continue on their quest. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when I, when I hear that, that speech, I'd, I'd run through a wall for old Samwise Gamgee. But, but as Christians, we need to be friends and have friends like old Samwise. Friends who, who know what to say because they know what's going on. They've been beside you. And they know what will uplift you in that moment of desperation. You see, true friendship is a bond that's forged between people as they persevere in the faith with trust and truth as their foundation. So let's conclude by looking at at 25 one more time. And in the end, it says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The the author turns his focus onto the future. The nearness of Christ's return makes our encouragement of one another and our gathering together all the more urgent. Because 
it also reminds us that we are on a mission. Every week we close with the corporate reciting of the Great Commission where it reminds us to make disciples of all nations. But when we say to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, it would not be inappropriate for us to stop and think at that point and say, because Jesus is coming back. And for when he does, though, it it will be too late. Jesus will divide the sheep from the goats, and that will be the end. Would that reality spark a fire under us that we need to invite people to church? And we're going to have opportunities for Alpha Boat. Inviting people to church is it's kind of a lost practice of inviting family and friends. But as we said many times before and as we've rehearsed, it's, it's that it's God's work alone that can save. It's not what we say or the situations that people are in, but God's word alone. So we don't know who will or will not believe, and Jesus really can save anybody. So so we need to make disciples of all nations. We say that every week, and and the means of that is simply inviting somebody to church. Let's be bold in doing that and being promised, like holding on to the promises that he has said because he is faithful. So as, as we close today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. As a closing song, I'm going to sing verses 24 and 25 directly from Scripture. Unique that God does to the words in Scripture when put into a song. The truths connect in our heart in a different way that will hopefully carry a special meaning to us moving forward. So as I sing this song from Scripture, my prayer is that, you know, the application points made today would, would go with us. Um, those promises of encourage one another with the promises of God. And that it will sit on your heart in a special way as we go from here. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near and all the more as you see the day drawing near and all the more as you see the day drawing near Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works.
Father, we ask that you help us to apply to our laws what we just heard from your word, God. That we would not treat casually the times that we are together as your body, but that as we meet together, that we would truly encourage one another with your promises because we know that you have proven yourself faithful over and over and over again, God. God, help us as we go from here to be reminded of our mission and grant us the boldness to reach out to those around us and to invite them, God. God, they need to hear you, God. They need to be saved, God, and only you can do that. God, it's for your glory and in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.